Good morning. Uh, you know, we have now spent, I think, the better part of the last uh, year and a half or so going through the book of Luke in the Bible. Uh, we're almost halfway through. And I just want to pause for a moment and point out something that I've been noticing lately, and I'm kind of curious if you've been noticing it as well. I feel like, especially this summer, week after week, I'm standing up here and I'm bringing yet another tough word from Jesus. And each week this summer, I, I sit down at my desk each week, and I'm ready to study the next passage in Luke, and I'm just ready to see another story, or at least one story, where Jesus is teaching on love, or grace, or like hugs a kid, like snuggles a lamb, like something like that, right? And it's just the summer, it's just not happening. Uh, we are in really the middle section of Luke here, and in the middle section of Luke, we see a Jesus who speaks often about repentance and sin. We see a Jesus who intensely challenges the Pharisees. We see a Jesus who talks about his followers needing radical obedience. It's certainly not this characterized version of Jesus that many Americans are accustomed to. But again, this is one of the main reasons that we spend a better part of our year just going through a book of the Bible verse by verse. Because otherwise, it would be really easy for us to just kind of cherry-pick the stories about Jesus that everybody knows and loves. But this way, we can actually get a full and accurate picture of who the Son of God really is. So, let's continue in the book of Luke. Uh, There's a Bible under every chair. I'd love for you to follow along in the Word of God. We're going to be on page 844. uh, Or you can use the Renovation Church app. Just have Bible in weekly verses. As we open up today's passage, uh, no surprise, you're going to get another intense look at uh, Jesus. There are no cuddling of lambs involved in this passage. Uh, Jesus is going over to someone's house. He's been invited over for a meal. He's going to quickly offend his host and then proceed to give his host and the others there six warnings. So this is just, this is the middle of the book of Luke. Okay, all right, Luke chapter 11, uh, we are on verse 37 now. Here's what it says. So it's when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord, Jesus, said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees. This is that, they just invited him over for dinner. <laughs> Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Er, herbs, wow. It's uh, good morning, uh, herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Uh, First of all, this guy's totally regretting inviting Jesus over for dinner, right? Okay. So Jesus starts the dinner party off with a bang when he purposely comes in, sits down, and he doesn't wash his hands or his cup, or his dish. And the Pharisees freak out. Why? Because they're like germaphobes, right? (laughs) Like no germ theory yet. Like why are they freaking out? 
They're freaking out because for them, the washing was religious. So here's what happened. Uh, By the time of Jesus, uh, many of the Jews, uh, particularly those who followed the Pharisees, had developed all sorts of rules and traditions that went way beyond what the Old Testament actually taught. See, in the Old Testament, if you were to go to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to pray, uh, one of the things that you would do is you ceremonially would wash yourself beforehand, and that was just supposed to be a visual aid, that if you're coming into the presence of God, you've, you've got to clean your heart, you've got to prepare yourself. But the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had taken it to a whole new level. Right? They were constantly worried about having become unclean because they must have touched some sinner or something impure. And they felt, well, technically, we're always approaching God. And so they were constantly washing their hands and washing their cups and washing their dishes. Uh, they even developed rules for how godly people were to wash their hands. And so if you wanted to be godly, you were to wash your hands and let the water hit your fingers first and then go down to your wrist. If you let the water hit your wrist first, don't even show yourself, right? I'm just unreal, right? If you, they developed rules where if you uh, ate your first course, many of them would stop and wash again before they ate their second course. And so Jesus comes to their party. He knows exactly what they do, right? And they're all kind of feverishly washing, and he just comes and sits down for the meal, right? He's making a statement to them. I'll look at verses 39 to 40 one more time, because that's really where the exact statement is. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? They're forgetting about the internal. They're forgetting about the heart. They were satisfied with just the appearance of righteousness and holiness, but on the inside, he says in verse 44, they're like unmarked graves. So if you think of an unmarked grave, there may be some pretty flowers and grass on the outside that people see, but on the inside there is death. There is spiritual death. Okay, so Jesus has already delivered three woes to the Pharisees, and now he's going to give three woes to the experts in the law. Uh, that is, uh, people who were experts in the teaching of Moses. Except they weren't technically really experts in that. More accurately, they were experts in all the traditions that the Pharisees had made up. Uh, by the way, uh, just uh, semantically here, woe isn't a word that we use a whole lot, right? You don't probably walk around to people saying woe to you, right? If you do, you should see someone. Uh, <laughs> When Jesus says woe, what does he mean? Uh, he's actually speaking, the word means, it's actually more in anguish than it is in anger. Uh, if you were to read the same passage in the New Living Translation, it translates that Greek word as Pharisees. What sorrow awaits you? That's what they translate as woe. So you kind of get a feel of, he's speaking strongly, but also with a level of anguish. Okay, look to the next verse, if you have it in front of you. Verse 45. It says, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you, you insult us also. I love this verse. This is, this is so 2019. <laughs> He's basically saying, Jesus, when you say that, you offend us. I'm offended. <laughs> the Bible's so relevant. Okay, here's the tension that Jesus lives in, and we must as well in our culture. We are to speak the truth, and sometimes the truth will offend. And that doesn't mean that you need to stop. 
right? Because Jesus, he's going to say, you offend us. And then Jesus turns, he's going to say, woe to you, right? So he's going to continue. But notice, there's, that's, that's why the anguish is important. It's not just anger. Jesus is speaking to the truth to them, but he's doing so with a heart that bleeds for them, a heart that forgives them even as they crucify him. And so we have to live in the same tension as modern-day Christians. Speak the truth. You don't have fear to speak the truth to someone, but you have to speak it in anguish and in love. Okay, let's get through the rest of the passage here. So verse 46. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Okay, so what's he talking about, uh, particularly when he's talking about uh, the prophets of the Old Testament and that sort of thing? He's saying, you, supposedly, you as the religious leaders, you honor the prophets of the Old Testament, but clearly, they're no different than the people who killed the prophets of the Old Testament. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they're rejecting Jesus Christ, who is the one who actually from heaven sent the prophets from the Old Testament, right? He's the one that the prophets of the Old Testament were prophesying about, and they're rejecting him. And so all the blood of all the generations comes on that generation because they rejected all the prophets. He said from Abel, who was the son of Adam and Eve, who was killed by Cain, all the way to Zechariah. Uh, by the way, kind of a, a cool fact here. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, which is the Bible that the people of Jesus' time would have had in front of them, essentially the Old Testament, but the Hebrew Bible uh, was in a different chronological order. And so the last book of the Hebrew Bible is not Malachi, it's actually Second Chronicles. And the very last prophet who's killed in Second Chronicles is Zechariah, the prophet Jesus mentions. And so when he says, all the blood of the prophets is on you from Abel, all the way to Zechariah, he's basically saying all the prophets in all of your Bible are on you. So I think the message of this passage that we went through is, is clear. Don't be like the Pharisees, right? Don't be like the experts in the law. You're not following God if all you're trying to do is just clean up the outside of your life. It's somewhat a question of motivation here, and we all have to ask this of ourselves. If our motivation, our spiritual motivation, is at the core just to impress others, if your motivation is just to earn God's favor, then you're missing it. You're missing what a follower of Jesus really is. If you're just in church today because you want to show some of these other people, maybe a spouse, maybe a family member, that you are, you are a good person, you're, you're missing it. If you serve the poor, if you serve at church, if you, if you share a picture on social media of you reading your Bible by a nice 
cup of coffee, and your intention is really just to show on the outside that you're a good Christian, you're missing it. In the parallel passage to this, where Jesus is essentially saying the same thing, in the book of Matthew, uh, we see Jesus say this. Uh, Matthew 23, is, uh, where you can also read this story. But Jesus adds, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Okay, so we start with the inside. Uh, here's one way I've, I've heard it explained before, and this has always been helpful for me. Yeah, imagine uh, something goes wrong with your dishwasher, and you open it up, smells kind of funny, and you pull out your favorite coffee cup, looks fine on the outside actually, and you look on the inside and there's just a ton of crud from last night's dinner, right? All just kind of caked throughout the inside of your coffee cup. Are you going to drink from that cup? Uh, No, right? Because the inside is, it's, it's not good. Now, theoretically, this is where you see the sort of the preeminence of the inside, why it really matters. You could have, probably not, but you could have some things on the outside of your cup, maybe a few stains or something. But if the inside was clean and you were really thirsty, right, you could still take a drink. And so we start with the inside. Because if you in your spiritual life, or really just in your life holistically, if you're keeping up a facade on the outside, and you seem to the world like a nice, good, suburban resident. You got a nice job. You keep your house clean, right? You, your lawn is well manicured. Uh, you've got a few kids. They seem pretty smart. One of them maybe even excels at a sport. You even show up at church once in a while. Most people, because again, they just see the outside of your life, most people will look at you and say, hey, you're doing great. You got a great life. God Almighty sees the inside of your life. He sees the inside. He sees you when no one else is looking. God knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings, your emotions. In fact, he knows you better than you do. And we cannot somehow please God by just putting up an appearance of a good and spiritual life on the outside. In fact, doing that, if you're doing that right now, it is a mockery of God's knowledge, of his omniscience. Of course God knows what you're really like. You you cannot trick God with outward obedience, but an inside that's not following him. And so what God actually really wants from you, first and foremost, is he wants your heart. Because if he gets your heart, if he really truly gets your heart, then he'll get your obedience and trust on the outside. I think one of the axioms you could use is if you follow God in secret, you will follow God in public. There is, uh, however, here a a dangerous overreaction to legalism that uh, we need to talk about this morning. Now, for those of you who grew up in church, you might be familiar with this word legalism. I know in a church like this, there are many of you that you're just checking out God again. Maybe you haven't been to church in five years or since you were a kid. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with this word legalism, legalism is basically what you see in the Pharisees. Uh, Legalism is this idea that you can earn your way to God by your behavior and your good deeds. You know, and that's antithetical to Christianity. Christianity is that we can't earn our way. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. It's our faith that saves us. 
Now, legalism, if you study church history, has been an enormous thorn in the side of Christians for centuries. But if I'm totally honest with you, as a pastor, legalism is not our biggest problem in America in 2019. In 1819, huge problem. Really big deal. 2019, not as much. Most people today actually struggle with a different problem, a a sort of overreaction to legalism. What I believe many American Christians have fallen into today is what the old timers used to call a license. A license is the idea that because Jesus loves me, because he accepts me, I basically have the license, I have the permission to live my life how I want to. I'm sure Jesus says, you know, here's how to live, but he loves me, right? And so ultimately, what does it matter? He has grace and I have the license to live how I want to live. And a lot of people live like this. And so someone with this sort of thinking would put really little emphasis on outward behaviors. Uh, Think uh, like what you do with your money. Uh, Think about uh, sexual purity or any one of those things that your grandma used to care about, right? The one that you probably thought of when I was talking about being a legalist. See, a person who's living in license, not legalism, a person who's living in license would say, what really matters in life is that your heart is in the right place. What really matters in life is that we just love, that we love people. What really matters is that we're kind. It's the uh, prevailing attitude of the day, really. It doesn't matter so much what you do, just that you do life out of love. Uh, For example, I've seen this story uh, shared on social media, I swear, like seven times in the last two months. Maybe you've seen it. It's the one where the the girl, her little girl, her dog dies, and she writes a, a letter to God in heaven, and they put it in the, in the mailbox, and the postman writes back as God. Have you seen this? And then he writes back as God, and then at the end of it, God says to the little girl, he says, I'm not hard to find. Wherever in the world, wherever there is love, I am there. And he says, and remember the three most important things. Be kind, be kind, be kind. So you want to take the American version of God and just stuff it in a box. That's essentially it. It's saying what really matters is that you do life out of love and that you are kind. And what I see happening here is you kind of have two sides of society and they're pitting the internal versus the external, right? Legalism is saying, hey, you want to be a good person? You want to please God? You better do all these external behaviors, right? You do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be a good person, and God will be happy with you. And license is the opposite. It's not external. Everything is internal. It says, ah, don't worry about conforming to all these sort of Christian behaviors. No, no, no. Just get your heart in the right place and love people and be kind. Work on the internal, and you'll be okay. Okay, but what does Jesus say? Okay, look back at verse 42. Because it's right here. It's in this text. Verse 42, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth, that's 10%, of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, that's the love of God, the internal, all these things, without leaving the former. How's the tithing undone? Okay, so let's unpackage this. 
So the Bible uh, tells us to tithe. Uh, that's, a, that's a fancy word for giving 10% of your income back to God. Now, 100% of it is from God. He's saying, I want 10% of it back as your Lord. And apparently the Pharisees were so meticulous right, because they care so much about the outward. They were so meticulous in their tithing that they would literally go into their herb gardens. They would go to their mint leaves, and they would go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one for God. One, two, three. They were literally doing that. (laughs) It's unbelievable, right? By the way, for those of you that have kind of said, oh, tithing, I don't know, that's surely that's like an Old Testament thing. Okay, I want you to hear something. If Jesus is ever going to outlaw the tithe, It's going to happen right here, okay, in this passage. Because Jesus in the New Testament, he's constantly pointing out the legalism of the Pharisees. He's saying, oh, you guys, you're so focused just on the law and you're missing the internal. You almost kind of expected Jesus to say, you're tithing even your mint. Just stop it. That's wrong. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, you tithe. Good. Don't leave that undone, he says. Keep doing that. But you shouldn't do one, the external, without the other, the internal. See, Jesus doesn't want his followers to have to choose between outer righteousness and inward righteousness. We actually should be concerned about both, really with the inside being our starting point, as we saw earlier in that Matthew text. Because you cannot, with any sort of integrity spiritually or even emotionally. You can't with any sort of integrity say, Jesus, you have my heart, and then externally with your behaviors have no regard for Jesus' teachings. Like, there's a schizophrenia to that. And yet, I think that's how many modern-day American Christians live. They come, they sit here in a worship service, they sing the songs, and they say, Lord, you have my heart and my life. But they don't. He doesn't. Not on the outside. See, I would say if you are truly, actually devoting your heart to Jesus, you are actually putting him on the throne of your heart, it will lead to an outward life that is devoted to Jesus. Uh, As I was uh, studying this passage this week, uh, I created a chart that, uh, I'm just nerdy I know, but uh, please forgive me, that I think is helpful in sort of understanding this external-internal battle that's happening in society. So let's throw that up on the screen uh, if you want to uh, put this in your notes somewhere, you can, or even just take a picture of it, if that's helpful. Uh, sometimes that's even easier. Feel free to do that. I want you to think about where you might be on this chart. So take a look. This is the legalism column here. No, remember, uh, legalism, this is the life of the Pharisee. Everything in this column is about the external. So in this column, we're just trying to make sure that people see good and positive spiritual behaviors on the outside. We work hard to make sure that people see that. Okay, but what happens? You can kind of walk down. This is how I live. When you walk down the column, the result of legalism is in your mind, legalism fosters pride every time. And in your mind, you start to think, huh, well, I'm, uh, I'm better than other people because look at these other people and you're just judging externals. They're not doing this. I don't see them washing their hands and their fingers down, right? Like, I see them watching this on Netflix, right? right? And everything is judged. So what happens is you develop pride, and you think that you're better than other people. And eventually, in your heart, that's this row, becomes cold. Okay, why, does the, why does the heart of a legalist become cold? And I bet anecdotally you could point to some people in your life that are legalistic, and I almost can guarantee you that their hearts are cold. 
And here's why that happens. It happens because when you're living in legalism, you're not receiving the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. That's the type of thing that softens your heart as a believer. And why are you not receiving that? Because you don't need to, right? Because you earned God's favor by accomplishing all of the rules. And so legalism every time eventually leads to a cold heart spiritually. Okay, now let's jump over to the right column, right? This is the overreaction to legalism. And I would say if Christians are not biblically following Jesus today in 2019, most people are probably, especially younger people, are in this column. Again, overreaction. Here, people are saying, God accepts me, uh, he loves me as I am, and so really the only key to life is just being loving and kind. Everything is internally focused. But hardly any focus on the external demands that Jesus also has for his disciples. What's the long-term result of that sort of thinking, right? That sort of theology. Well, the long-term result is eventually we start to think, well, I make my own way. I determine my own truth. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens because, yes, if God loves me and accepts me and it doesn't really matter how I live, then who gets to decide how you live? You decide how you live. And when that's true, eventually the result is, in your heart, the the eventual result is a dead heart. Here's why. When you become the king of your life, when you become the queen of your life, You don't need God. And without God enmeshed in your life, your spiritual heart dies. I've been a a pastor for 15 years now, and I will tell you that I have watched this, not as much this, a little bit, but I've watched this particular progression play out way too many times that I would care to see. And what happens is people say, they always start, oh, God just loves me. He's a loving God. He accepts me. And they seem like they really love God. But when you're making your own way, you don't need to follow God. And when you don't follow God, then eventually you don't need God. And when you don't need God, you don't talk to God. And when you don't talk to God, eventually the bottom falls out. And they look at Scripture and they say, well, I don't really recognize the authority of Scripture in my life. I think that part's probably wrong. and Because they want to make their own way, right? And I don't really need God. And I'm just watching this play out over and over and over again because it's not the way of Jesus. The way of being a disciple as described in scripture is this highlighted middle column. It's an inner devotion that leads to, true inner devotion will always do this, leads to outward obedience, external devotion. It's not one without the other. You don't pick just internal. You don't pick just external. So in this column, you're always firstly thinking about the inside. I'm going to give my heart more to the Lord today. I'm going to meet with him in prayer. Every day, I just want to study his word. Are you in the word of God? Every day, I just want to give more of my heart to him. I want to follow him when no one's watching. And if you do that, that leads to outward obedience. Why? Because you, you experience him personally, internally, and you're like, yes, God is good. He's growing my life. I want you to trust him more and more. So you see, like in today's passage, there it is in the New Testament, he's calling you, say, to 10% giving, right? You go, oh, man, I don't know. 
God, you are good and I trust you and I follow you. He's calling you to lead a pure and holy life. He's calling you to forgive people who've wronged you. He's calling you and on and on and on we read. But instead of saying, oh, I don't know, he just loves and accepts me and so I'll just kind of do what I need to do. You're saying, no, 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 I, because you love and accept me and died for you, for me, I'm going to follow you. And what happens then is your heart actually becomes more and more alive. One of the other things, I think this is interesting, and maybe it's just me, but one of the other things that jumped out to me as I was making this chart is that both the legalism column and the license column are really about propping up a false image to people that we are good. So think about this. Legalism says, I am good. I'm a good person because externally I do X, Y, and Z. And so therefore I am a good person. A license in a same, kind of does the same thing, but it's internal. A license says, I am good because internally in the way I live my life, which I can choose what that is, I do it out of love. My motivation is out of love, and so therefore I am good. And isn't it fascinating that the highlighted column, the biblical column, is the only one that says, I am not good. I'm kind of a mess. But as a Christian, lots of times we say, ah, I'm kind of anxious. Sometimes I struggle with depression. I seem to not stop sinning, as Paul says in Romans 7. I don't know why I keep doing the things I do not want to do. I can't stop screwing up. I heard this person's feelings yesterday, and probably heard that person's tomorrow. I'm kind of a mess. And yet, this is Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Yet, the Son of God who came from heaven, the King of kings, the only one who knows what I'm actually truly like, that Jesus loves me anyway. And it's not just that he loves me anyway, because about half of American Christendom, half of American Christians stop right there. The Bible doesn't stop right there. It says, that God sees exactly who I am. He loves me anyway. It's not one without the other. He loves me so much that I'm going to trust him with my life in obedience because I believe that his ways are better than my ways, than me making my own way, than me making my own truth. He can make my heart actually come more alive, and so I'm going to give my whole life to him. Yes, his path is narrow, but his road is good. I'm going to trust in that. I'm giving all of it to him. I'm giving him my internal. I'm giving him my external. There isn't one without the other. I'm surrendering all of my life to Jesus Christ. And see, it's only when you humble yourself and you admit that you're not good, that you need to move from here to here, that you need a savior. And you need to move from here to here. You need someone to actually direct your life. It's only when you humble yourself that your heart can actually come alive in Jesus Christ.